I think people are just beginning to get a sense of our power. In the words of Alice Walker, the biggest way people give up power is by not knowing we have it. To start with, we have it, and I think people are just beginning to feel that right now. Hi everyone, Blake here at Stuist Media in Munich, Germany, and this is the Resistance Companion Podcast. Back in January of 2017, uh, my cameraman buddy Dennis Provost and I traveled to Washington, D.C. to document the resistance on the streets to the inauguration of Donald Trump. In filming that, we ended up doing a bunch of interviews with different leaders, protesters, influencers, and the footage would eventually become a web series that we call Resistance. If you'd like to check out the series, please be sure to go to our Vimeo channel at vimeo.com slash stewismedia. While we're putting together the series, we always have to make decisions on the interviews, cutting them down to make them fit whatever story or storyline we're trying to get across in that episode. But a lot of times we found that there was a lot of context or good information that we just couldn't fit in and we wanted a way to get it out to the audience. And so this podcast was born. Here we'll feature individual interviews from some of the people that we interviewed that week so that you can get to know them and their movements a little bit better. Our aim with this entire project is to help engage people with these groups and organizations so that we can build a grassroots movement to get the real change that people want in the United States. This week we are going into our interview with Dr. Jill Stein, who was the 2016 presidential candidate for the Green Party. Um, we had a chance to sit down with her during the Occupy Inauguration Summit, which was held, uh, I guess, two days after uh, the inauguration. It's a relatively short interview, but even though it's short, she packs a ton of really useful information and really uh, still very timely information. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, after the interview, uh, I'll be back with my partner in crime, Randy M. Salo, and we'll discuss it and go into a little bit of it and uh, try to bring it up to our current time that we're in. So... Without further ado, here is Dr. Jill Stein. Um, so, Dr. Stein, thank yeah. you for taking the time to talk with us. My, really appreciate it. My pleasure, it. my honor. Um, yeah, so first thing I want to talk to you about, because I think you're in the unique position after mm -hmm. the 2016 election to talk about this, is explain to maybe people that haven't researched it or don't know so much about it, what are these sort of systemic barriers to third-party candidates, third-party politics, in the system as it stands now, and what are the things, policy-wise, that we can do to start opening up, democratizing our system again? Great. And so just to cut through some of the terminology, the barriers are really to people. Mm -hmm. The barriers are to people-powered politics, because our political system is run by uh, big corporate predators, basically, and mm -hmm. both parties serve uh, those interests. That's why we've had this incredibly disastrous outcome to this election. It's basically a toxic outcome of a very toxic product right. uh, or process, I should say. And most supporters of Donald Trump, most people who were voting for him were actually voting against Hillary Clinton. So, you know, uh, it's been uh, a very, uh, you know, uh, troubled, chaotic, poisoned, corrupt process that has led to this. Mm -hmm. And um, the barrier is not just to third parties, you know, because like the Tea Party got incorporated right into the system, you know, as it was co-opted by, by big money. And, um, you know, and 
Donald Trump, who sort of presumed to be kind of an outsider, he was also, you know, just bought his way in and bought his way into big media. And big media actually just lapped him up. He didn't need to, in fact, buy his way because he was so good for, uh, for the corporate profits of the medium. So, you know, I think the really important point here is that it's not being a third or a fourth party. It's being uh, a politics of integrity and a politics for the people. And those barriers exist everywhere. So it's the media's refusal to cover us because we are a threat. Um, and because we represent exactly what it is that people are screaming for and are dying for lack of and, you know, uh, unable to get the jobs that they need um, uh, because of, you know. So we really speak to the issues that uh, move people and mm -hmm. that people are screaming for. So this is part of how the system defends itself. We are locked out of access to ballots for pretty much the same reason. Uh, the process grandfathers in the two corporate political parties. Same thing with the uh, debates. Same thing with this voting system of first past the post, which basically says that you got to choose between two. And if you are a third person in this two-party system, that you're going to throw the election to someone we don't want. It creates a politics of fear. Mm -hmm. And that politics of fear has delivered everything we are afraid of we need voting reforms, too, in the form of ranked choice voting, which allows you to rank your choices. And uh, it, that way, if your first choice loses, your vote is automatically reassigned to your second choice. It enables us to actually vote our values. Democracy is not just a question of who do we hate the most and who are we most afraid of. Democracy needs to be an, affirm an affirmative vision of where we're going and how we get there. Um, so in the last week or the last few days, we've seen mass movements, I mean, mass uh, marches and protests. Uh, you know, the White House is going to try to say the numbers weren't there, but it was definitely more people on the other side of this. How have, what is it, what's your impression been since coming to see all this? How does it make you feel? Does it make you more hopeful moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, even before coming here, uh, I was working on a day-long forum uh, for grassroots activists and leaders to share what their strategies are at the local level. And um, we actually did this seven-hour forum on Facebook, on the Green News Network, which is basically just my, my uh, campaign website rolled mm -hmm. over, uh, Dr. Jill Stein, DR No Period. Um, and bringing together all these activists from all over the place. And even doing that was so uplifting for me to feel like there is so much power and wisdom. And, uh, and in approaching this day, you know, uh, one thing I think that has been front and center in my mind, which I've been trying to share with people, is that uh, this is not new. Think back, for example, to Richard Nixon uh, if you weren't there, you know, then, then, you know, looking at the history books. But under one of the most corrupt and repressive, oppressive presidents in our history, what did we do? We brought the troops home from Vietnam. We got the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, established the Environmental Protection Agency. We got women's right to choose from a very conservative Supreme Court. We established OSHA and uh, protections for workers' safety and health. Uh, we did a whole lot of stuff mm -hmm. under a horrible president because we were mobilized. Why were we mobilized? Because 
our brothers largely um, were being sent to die in Vietnam. We knew our lives were on the line. Our lives are on the line again now. And so people are getting mobilized and we're getting out there. And, uh, you know, as it happens, this president turns out to be, you know, a, a delusion that he was able to kind of foment. And people are waking up to that and his numbers are plummeting. Even his own supporters are walking away from him. Uh, there's incredible controversy. What's that? And we're all had day two. I know. And what is it that he's using his bully pulpit for? You know, it's to argue with the media about these incredibly petty, self-absorbed little things. This guy is so unprepared for the task. It's just jaw-dropping that he was able to dupe the media into his delusion of power. Uh, so it's... Is this guy going to last? It's hard to know. I mean, he is a um, he's a setup for impeachment, uh, you know, just like around the corner because he's violating all kinds of laws and constitutional requirements and is clueless about relinquishing and turning over his, um, uh, you know, his his fortunes and mm -hmm. his 500 businesses that create conflicts of interest and violations of the emoluments clause, which is that, you know, you're not supposed to have benefits as a president from other countries. And, and it's, you know, it's just a testimony to his cluelessness that he doesn't even understand this. Mm -hmm. you know, so uh, this guy is going to have his hands tied. He already does have his hands tied. How many appointments has he been made? There are 600 executive appointments that have to be made. He's made 29. You know, they are so totally unprepared for this. Um, I, you know, I think people are just beginning to get a sense of our power. In the words of Alice Walker, the biggest way people give up power is by not knowing we have it to start with. We have it, and I think people are just beginning to feel that right now. It's going to take a lot of work because they got, they got all the ammo on their side, you know, but we've got the peaceful ammo. We've got the numbers. Uh, we have the, uh, the moral authority. We are going the high road here. Uh, we really do have the solutions. So this is a perfect storm mm -hmm. for deep transition. It's not about just replacing Donald Trump with a Democrat that people were voting against mm -hmm. in the process of bringing Donald Trump into office. My experience out there on um, Inauguration Day was really uplifting. I was just standing around on a corner just talking to people, and I was so exhilarated to see that people uh, are not... You know, uh, they, 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 they've taken off the blinders. They're really looking big, and they're really looking for a system change to throw away these uh, corporate predatory parties and to make this a real springboard for a peaceful political revolution. So on that note, something we've been trying to investigate a lot is, so what we're calling the resistance movement now seems to be bringing a lot of what used to be sort of a fractious left together and in coalition, especially you saw it in the marches and in the, the J20 protests. What we're really wanting to find out is, does that mean sort of a merging of the third political parties into one unified party? Does that mean just a, coali a coalition organization? What kind of uh, concrete steps forward do you think that we, we should, we will see and what should should we see? So in my experience over the years, what I've seen happening is that our agendas are converging mm -hmm. for the non-corporate parties. So I would exclude those parties that take uh, corporate money. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of Democratic Party knockoffs that uh, take corporate money. So that, to my mind, it's taking money from not only corporations, but also their surrogates. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, um, 
you can't contribute uh, corporate money to uh, presidential campaigns, but their surrogates, that is the corporate executives, uh, can contribute th that money. So in the Green Party, that's what we say. We don't take money from corporations or from their surrogates, from their CEOs, their lobbyists, their lawyers, et cetera, their major office holders. Mm -hmm. um, that's the line which I think is really important. And if you look at those parties, so it's not the libertarians, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. There are lots of principled libertarians, the grassroots libertarians, sure. but at some levels, they are, uh, you know, their candidates, their presidential campaigns uh, tend to be very corporate, mm -hmm. um, which causes kind of a schism in their own party. Mm -hmm. But that's why, you know, they have a different agenda. So we're saying among people who are really, among parties that are people-powered, our, our agendas are really converging now. Mm -hmm. And the differences between us have more to do with how we explain ourselves. Um, Greens tend to be more in the moment. Mm -hmm. Socialists tend to be more grounded in history. Mm -hmm. So we have different ways of kind of explaining. We use slightly different terminology. But in terms of what we're trying to do, it's pretty much the same thing. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing our parties converge. And, and what's really critical is that we have experience together on the ground, like this organizing mm -hmm. uh, around Occupy Inauguration, uh, organizing last night's event, um, Inaugurate the Resistance. I think. No, it was also... I don't remember what it was called. Yeah, it was inaugurated resistance. It was it inaugurated yeah, resistance yeah. with socialist alternative. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it was very, um, it builds trust, it builds community. And I think that's where our focus needs to be on doing more stuff like this together on the ground. Mm -hmm. And then we will begin to develop that sense of unity and move forward then mm -hmm. with economies of scale and, you know, mm -hmm. doing merging where it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we'll figure that out as we as we right. go, but that doesn't have to stand in the way at all. Greens use our ballot line for socialist and um, independent progressive party candidates all the time. So there are all kinds of collaborations we can have around elections and uh, around mobilizations. Uh, lacking one unified structure doesn't need to stand in our way whatsoever. There is an existing organization now to build that coalition. It's mm -hmm. called Left Elect, mm -hmm. and uh, Progressive Independent Party should mm -hmm. become a part of that, yeah. uh, this discussion, uh, and piggyback on these ongoing efforts because, mm -hmm. this, you know, this is a, uh, um, a valiant cause and people have been working at it, and it's wonderful to have uh, PIP, mm -hmm. you know, in the fray here as well, bringing new and fresh energy to this uh, struggle. Uh, and it makes all the sense in the world for us to piggyback on the work already done. I think we need to take a quick break. Keep going. Okay, I'll slide. We're good? Okay. Um, so on that point, I've, something that we've been noticing is that this movement towards unity seems to be really organic, and it's coming yeah. from the bottom up, which is yeah. what everybody always talks about, and it's, uh, you know, you're finally seeing that happen. Do you think that it's... Uh, going to take some time to start making some real electoral changes, or do you think it's going to start really taking root at the local level? At the local level, um, uh, it's ready to take root. I mean, Greens have elected something like a thousand local officials over the last 15 years, something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So it's begun, but, you know, the Greens have sort of been ahead of the curve mm -hmm. as an independent, non-corporate, people-powered uh, revolutionary party. Um, and the Greens have become more uh, social revolutionary, you know, in recent years. So we've got an infrastructure that's there. 
and we, you know, we can collaborate with other parties to help make this happen in a bigger way. And Greens are uh, generally very happy to share their ballot lines. Mm-hmm. Um, in some nonpartisan local races, you don't need a ballot line, and uh, so you know you don't have to do that. But the more we're coordinated in this effort, the better. And I think that by beginning with you know uh, a a bigger mobilization mm-hmm. around International Women's Day or around um, you know May Day, uh, protecting immigrant rights, uh, and all the uh, issues that uh, dovetail with that. You know, fighting the Muslim registry, mm-hmm. um, fighting the uh, detention centers and the night raids, and um, really promoting uh, sanctuary cities, encouraging people to run for sheriff so as to officially non-cooperate, because that's where push really comes to shove, is, is in the county sheriffs, as I understand it. Um, and uh, at any level of public office, uh, refusing to participate in, uh, in the deportation strategy is really important. So, you know, we can use events to move the social agenda, to help uh, recruit and support candidates, and to build our organic unity by collaborating um, on events like that. We should do the same on Earth Day. You know, mm-hmm. Earth Day should be all about, you know, radical organizing to um, shut down uh, all fossil fuel expansion. And, you know, expansion is just the first step, mm-hmm. you know, and start promoting as well the um, renewable energy, promoting municipal um, energy management through mm-hmm. municipal utilities, um, and promoting public ownership. There's just so many steps that can be taken at the local level. Uh, it's really exciting, and I think it's really easy to collaborate on events, and we can build on the great start that we've had here on Occupy Inauguration. Uh, another thing that I've been noticing is there's a lot of talk about uh, millennials mm-hmm. and how do we kind of start galvanizing people in that generation or that demographic. Would you say that's the only kind of... Um, not sure what the word I want to use, but the only sort of goal target demographic that uh, Mm. the Green Party, for example, would be going for? Or do you see other areas where you can really start making expansions into the voting block? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a perfect storm right now for, because everybody's being thrown under the bus, Mm -hmm. you know, and and yes, more so by Trump, but, you know, the reason people went to Trump was because the Democrats were throwing us under the bus too, including Mm -hmm. when Obama had two uh, houses of, of Congress. And, you know, uh, we can act locally on, on um, uh, student uh, you know, tuitions and the cost of, of higher education, particularly mm-hmm. public higher education. And we can also run candidates who are fighting uh, as elected officials, uh, whether you're running for the state legislature or you're just running for your city council, mm-hmm. you have traction as a city councilor to go to, um, to, go to the legislature with thousands of millennials along with you and, and demand that, um, that uh, tuition be abolished because it actually pays for itself. And in fact, uh, we know that. There is no excuse to be charging for tuition. Yeah, you gotta put some money in up front, but it will more than be repaid. So, you know, there are local campaigns that can be built around that, which can engage millennials as well. But at the, you know, at the other end, seniors are 
are desperately struggling now for retirements. There's not been an increase in cost of living in quite some time. And the average Social Security payment is, you know, it's just, it's really, this is a poverty payment, essentially. So, um, yeah, it's coalitions, or I should say it's demographics uh, across, across the board. Welcome back, everybody. That was uh, the interview I did with Dr. Jill Stein back in January. Uh, I'm here with my producer and partner in crime, Randy M. Salo. Welcome, Randy. Morning, Blake. Uh, yeah, it's been great to go back and listen to these interviews that we've been cutting for a few years, but to, to be able to listen to them in full and then for for you and I to talk about them, that's been really, really eye-opening. I think reliving them with the, the hindsight is also kind of interesting now that they're still, like we say, they're just still so relevant. Yeah, I think one of the first things we should touch on is like the controversy around, um, you know, people putting a lot of blame on on Dr. Jill Stein for having swung the election uh, for for Donald Trump because um, she siphoned, siphoned votes away from, from Hillary Clinton. Um, I mean... Jill Stein certainly talks about that in her interview and like the danger of like demonizing third parties and, and stuff like that. But um, what do you have to add to, to this uh, idea? I mean, we know now we have all the data. We've done the research. There has been no empirical data that says that Jill Stein's candidacy helped or hurt Donald Trump. I mean, if anything, it's it was Hillary Clinton's lack of you know, turnout, although she won, it was a lack of enthusiasm, essentially. And the Electoral College, and there's so many more factors beyond, uh, you know, a Green Party candidate running for president. And I think for a lot of Clinton loyalists and, and maybe more mainstream, I don't know the right word, Democrats, it's an easy, it's the same thing with Vladimir Putin or Russia, it's an easy out. It's an easy excuse for failing, right? Yeah, for not doing a, enough work to make your candidate, which is kind of a trademark of the Democratic Party, I think, is they are horrible at kind of self, <laughs> self-evaluation self and seeing their own uh, problems. But, uh, yeah, I think it's unfortunate because, you know, after the election, Jill Stein was the only one. She was, like, the only one that took it upon herself to look into these polling, these election irregularities in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, mm-hmm. Michigan, I think. So all those states where she was getting hell and being blamed, the Democratic Party wasn't spending any money to go look into that and see if there was any, any irregularities happening with the machines. Yeah. That was Jill Stein and her people and her campaign. It wasn't even really the Green Party. It was Jill Stein that decided to take that upon herself to do it. So, and if I re- if I recall correctly, she was the one that actually came out and and said that they discovered that they had been that people had been falsely using uh, you know her name in this like campaign on Facebook and stuff. Um, I guess the Russians in this case, you know, d- sending out disinformation and using Jill Stein's name, you know, to do that. And she was like kind of the first one to to go on the air and talk about that specifically, right? And then they still blamed her. Well, if you hadn't run, the Russians wouldn't have used you, right? It's just just insane. And, I mean, at the end of the day, if you had a candidate or a campaign that was actually speaking to people and, you know, talking about the things people care about and the things people actually want to 
have happened to their country, then all these things would be mute point, right? <laughs> like, yeah. we wouldn't even be talking about this if they had gone out and, like, it's like what we talk about in the series all the time. The polling sh- is very clear of what American people want. And then they get the exact opposite in most cases from their government. So unless we tackle that, then this whole conversation about third parties to me is a little ridiculous. Although I would say I do think there is an argument to third parties staying out of presidential politics for a lot of reasons, but I think strategically for the reason that it doesn't really... So the reason for running, even though you know you're not going to win, right, as a third party, is to get, A, more exposure for your party and to help you get more ballot access down the road. If you reach a certain percentage of votes, then you're kind of, like, ushered into certain... But that being said, I haven't seen, like, these days, I mean, what do you say, like, the last... Since I've been an adult with elections, like, there's never been where any of that really helps them. At the end of the day, they just get all the blame for Bush or Trump and any, like, side benefit they got from getting even, like, a fraction of the vote hasn't panned out into any, like, huge growth in local elections, right? Right, and the long game is, like, if we can talk about these, like, big uh, Green Party issues on a larger platform, but, I mean, they're they're not invited to the debates anyway. Yeah, exactly. They're never invited anyway. It's kind of like why keep going to the party that nobody, you know, nobody's invite keeps in right. dissing you and telling you that they don't want you there. Why keep, why not go around them? I feel like if you, you know, and also to run a national election is expensive. A national campaign is insanely expensive. Yeah. Those funds, like, could be used to getting greens into state legislatures, getting greens into... Right, it's like the down ballot thing where if you can get pe- more more green people elected into the local government... Well, then you can really put the pressure on. Yeah, and you can get legislation passed that deals with a lot of the issues of the Green Party. And what she was talking about, too, I think she brings up the whole thing about running for county sheriff because, especially in the West, you know, the county sheriffs, there's just, the West is so huge, right, land mass-wise. These counties are, some of them are massive. So if you become a county sheriff, she was talking specifically about deportations and things, but you have a lot of opportunity to, like, jam up the gears of the empire in a lot of ways in a local level you get enough greens there's you know dsa members in these places in these positions now you're actually like making some demands now you actually have some lever to be like no 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 no. i'm not i'm not going away until you do this that and the other thing right where pouring money asking people for money to run a campaign that's bound to lose like I mean, I, I can admit it. I voted for Jill Stein in 2016 for that very reason. I, my vote is counted in California. I knew it was going to Clinton. There was no question that the electors would go to her. But for the strategic reason that we talked about is that if I, I thought if I threw my vote to Jill Stein, at least that helps build up some more electoral, you know, at least uh, strategic power for the Greens in my state. Although California, of most states, has a pretty large Green yeah. <laughs> Green Party presence in like local ultra local but yeah I, I i do kind of see the the argument for that of what is the point of mixing ourselves up in presidential like the executive branch of the government has at this point is very clear who that represents and it's not people right 
And again, how effective is the executive branch if you don't uh, have a majority in the Supreme Court, for instance? Um, you, you know, even if we, if Biden wins and they flip the Senate for the Democrats, um, but there is a conservative majority on the Supreme Court, then any laws that Congress passes and the president signs into law um, will end up in the courts and then they'll make their way in front of conservative majority Supreme Court. And then in that scenario, like this example she said about, you know, running for ultra local office, running for county sheriff, running for, you know, supervisor jobs, this becomes even more critical in this scenario because we already know that Democrats, like the Democratic Party writ large and down about, they're not going to stick their necks out to block or challenge these court decisions, right? But if there's a green or a DSA person, somebody from the progressive left in one of those places, there's a much higher chance that they're just going to be like, no. Or they're just going to continually bring these cases in front of the court, which is how we won gay marriage, which is how we've gotten immigration things done, is that you could just kind of keep the pressure on, keep the pressure on to where the courts have to... When so many court cases keep coming up, it gets in the news, right? And then it's talked about, and then eventually the president has to do something, right? So, yeah, I back and forth. I think it's unfair that the Greens and, and, I mean, it's mostly been the Green Party. They have, ironically, like this huge national reach, but they have a really hard time in national elections yeah. and federal elections. Uh, but, yeah, I think on one side it's super unfair to put all of the blame for Bush and Trump on the Green Party and their candidates. On the other hand... I think strategically the Green Party should consider not running anybody for president anymore and focusing more on these state elections and getting people in place for the reason we talked about is that that's where you can actually start protecting people. Yeah. I think we should rethink how we look at the federal government. Like it's the people running the federal government and in positions of power in the federal government are not there to help normal people. They're there to keep the status quo, right? And so if yeah. we want defense, then it has to be in local, local. We have to defend ourselves on that level. Yeah. And so that, that would be my, my takeaway from, from that and just from the last four years, like what we see now. And also a little plug for, for a hero of mine, Jeremy Scahill's uh, new series, the American mythology thing. I mean, stuff we all know, but I think he puts it in a great light of, you know, the executive branch has been has become essentially just like uh, another like it's part of the chamber of commerce, right? Like it's that's what it's there for. It's there to regulate those things and to keep those things intact. Let's jump into some of the finer points of what she talks about. Um, she hits a lot of great bullet points that we couldn't go too you know too deeply into the series. But um, I just want to ask you your thoughts on a few of them. I mean, first, she, you know, talks about, like, this this idea of politics of fear. Uh, what does she mean by that? I mean, this is one of the main theses of the series, I think, is this, that the system itself, the way it's set up, creates an imbalance in, like, what people want and what people get, right? Because when you're constantly making these big decisions on, like, who's going to govern you based on fear and not based on like what do I actually want to see then of course you know we see it in the polling what was it majority of Americans want Medicare for all but to almost to a person all the politicians in the federal government are absolutely against any 
you know, really moving towards any kind of socialized medicine. Yeah. Just say it out loud. Um, and this is a clear, clear product of this system that, you know, you're pigeonholed into going one way or the other. And this is, I mean, not to keep telling a broken record, but I think this is another reason to say, fuck, fuck it, presidential politics. You know, like, instead of voting for fear, we could be voting defensively. We could be voting affirmatively, right? Yeah. Instead of wasting our time on people. Like, whoever wants to run for president in a Republican or Democratic ticket probably doesn't have people's best interest at heart anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. Like, and just imagine on, like, a local level, I mean... We can do a little thought experiment. Let's say in a state like California, there are plenty more kind of liberal areas, right? But if you have, you know, enough cities or municipalities that are majority run by Greens or DSA folks, people in this sort of progressive coalition who work on the under the canopy of solidarity with each other, I mean... So anything comes down from the federal government trying to fuck with the state or even from the state government, all of those cities are going to be working together, theoretically, right, in this experiment, to block that as a, as a united front mm-hmm. instead of what we have now, which is, I don't, you know, nobody knows. There's no unity in, like, you know, from L.A. to San Francisco. I don't know that there's a, a ton of unity, but can you imagine if there's, like, a whole wing of the L.A. City Council that's Green Party and same thing in San Francisco – that creates a whole other dynamic. And I think that's where we can move away from this politics of fear and start moving towards a more strategic politics of, you know, a fighting politics, a strategic politics. She also talks about, like, first past the post, um, you know, voting and, and this concept of, of ranked choice voting. Can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, we know it very well here. I mean, ranked choice voting, proportional Voting is essentially how they do it in Germany and most European countries operate in this same system, which is that you vote. How is it here exactly? I'm screwed up. But I think here you get to vote for three parties initially. And then if your top line party doesn't reach a certain uh, a certain percentage amount, of percentage votes, of the right. votes to like actually make a dent, then your second choice will be taken. Right. So you don't lose your voice. In America, if you vote for Hillary Clinton and she loses the electoral college, then, I mean, this is, this is the, the horrible example that they're in, then you get a president that does not give a shit about what you want yeah. and is actively trying to do everything that you don't want. Yeah. And you have no say. And here, if, if one party doesn't get the, a certain majority of the votes, then they're forced to make a coalition with the sort of runner-up uh, party in this case. Which is... In America, the system is understood that these coalitions are made within the two parties, right? Like we have these caucuses. We have like the progressive caucus and the black caucus and the Hispanic caucus and the, I don't know, oil baron caucus. I don't know what they have in the right And the party itself is creating this coalition out of these different groups right. in their big tent, but right? The, but, the, but then the Democrats and uh, Republicans don't have to build a coalition together. They're just fighting each other, and that's why we have these deadlocks. And, you know, even the government gets shut down when they can't agree on something. That's, I mean, it's super complicated because, like, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, Biola says in the last episode, I think, of the series, they've been planning this and, like, transforming. The right has been transforming themselves over decades now to get to this moment where they've now ceded 
the majority of federal judges yeah. and Supreme Court justices, especially when you look at, you know, when anybody takes a look at a lot of these, you know, just unqualified, completely inept and kind of, which goes along with the Trump administration, I guess, like, but just like have no business even being in the job and they still get the appointment and they're rushed through and rubber stamped. And now a lot of those people are sitting over like huge potentially huge cases that will have lifetime, life, you know, also effects for our kids and, and their kids. Yep. Yeah. And if all those people or a majority of those people already have not even just a right wing bent, but like this extreme Trumpian right wing bent, like that's not good. <laughs> that's, yep. that's scary to get back to Ye's point. And I think the overall point that Jill makes towards the end of, of coming together and building these grassroots movements and finding coalition with other groups, uh, I mean, I think at the end, this is probably going to be the way that in, that this would ever happen is that on the left, people are very, mm, very sacred of their autonomy, right? They like to have their own yeah. voice, you know? And so I think this is the only way that's going to happen. But to get to your point is this is like another defense strategy that we have to be taking up just the way the right had been planning for 10, 20 years. I think the progressive left needs to take this viewpoint, like we've been talking about, shift all of our money and our energy to local elections, start building up in the local level, building the state level, because that's the only way we're going to be able to defend ourselves Mm -hmm. from the Trump court system that's going to be in place for the next however long, is if we have eventually some progressives, you know, not Gavin Newsom, like an actual progressive running the state of California, there's an actual progressive that's attorney general of California, for example, then you can actually start bringing cases and like making some dents in this court, in the court. And I, you know, what Jill said too is, you know, in the sixties and seventies under Nixon, you know, repressive regime, but they kept the pressure on, they had a strategy and it was something that we also talk about a lot that was talked about a lot because so we talk about a lot in the series because everybody else was talking about it this intersectionality that we've created over the last 10 20 years all these separate individual siloed off movements on the progressive left and we need to come back to what they understood in the 60s and 70s is that all of these issues are inter- intertwined yeah. and we I think it was Margaret Flowers that said we're not going to win just one thing if you want to win we have to win big like incremental trying to, you know, tip out a policy here and knock down a policy there was probably fine. But now I think the stakes have just gotten way too high. We don't have time for that shit anymore. <laughs> we need to do something drastic. So, Blake, what are some of your takeaways uh, from your interview with Dr. Jill Stein? Mostly that. I thought she had a really great take on electoral policy in America and and what's wrong with it and why we get these outcomes over and over again, you know, especially in our lifetimes. We've had two times now where somebody who didn't win the popular vote became the leader of the executive branch. So that was a, a main thing that I really got from her. I really just wanted to talk to her because of the unique perspective she had of being in that circus, you know, at whatever level. Um, and then... I would say, too, I was encouraged to hear her talk about how there is a lot of uh, overlap and and uh, working together within different groups, how she, Green Party seems to and has consistently been working with Socialist Alternative and other parties, other groups. And, I mean, there is, there has been building happening in the four years. I don't think it 
has gotten to the huge national level, the, you know, like super sexy, we have like a presidential candidate level. But for sure, there's groups that are forming coalitions on the ground in these local elections, which is what we're talking about is probably the way this is going to actually happen is mm, there's probably always going to be like an our revolution type group that's going to be working in the national level to get those people in. But I think her notion of focusing on these local elections, focusing on city and, and statewide elections as a way to build these coalitions, right? Because mm. I haven't thought of it until just now, but I mean, that's a great point is if everybody's always focused on national elections, it's so hard to like fathom how little old me can connect to this huge pool, you know what I mean? To make any kind of dent where if it's me and my group of friends that are like-minded and we are going to push for this candidate and then we find somebody else who has the same idea and now we got them and it's a much more like tangible way to build, build power, right? Exactly. And you're doing something. Now you're active. Where in the national politics, I think a lot of people feel like a, a disconnect, right? You don't see how you're, actions are actually and so i think this these comments from her were really a big takeaway for me especially now listening to it again that this is probably where we should keep our eyes on as far as the building of this progressive left over the next four eight years till we get to another election season of what's the new strategy is going to be and and how these intersectionalities and the the alignment of their policies start to become obvious to people right and and where those things meet, like she said, that's where you're going to start seeing growth and and change. So thanks a lot, Randy. That was a great discussion. Yeah, as always. I, and I hope it's the same for all of you guys listening there in, in the future. That this also has at least that much of an effect for you. That you know, not to be a downer. That things haven't changed much, but more that you know these fights, these struggles are continuous, and we have to constantly be vigilant stay on the ball. Be vigilant. Exactly right. Um, yeah. So thanks a lot, Randy. And. If you like what Randy and I are doing in these uh, interviews that we brought to you, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and give us some ratings. Leave some comments. That's always appreciated. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. Uh, So we're coming up on the last two of these podcasts. Uh, The next is a super long interview that I was able to do with the founders of Popular Resistance, which is a website and organization that is actively trying to bring together all these different groups into kind of an umbrella where they can talk. Um, and that is Margaret Flowers and Kevin Zeese. Uh, and because it is such a long one, I think we're gonna have to break that one up into, into two. But again, it's kind of the opposite of what we have with Jill. It's a super long one with a ton of information and really relevant stuff that didn't make it into the, into the cut of the series that I think people are really gonna really enjoy. And I think there's a lot to learn from them. So that'll be next week. See you next week, Blake. See you then, Randy. The Resistance Companion Podcast is a Stuist Media podcast and is recorded in Munich, Germany. This podcast is produced by myself and Randy M. Salo. Executive producer is Janine Stengel-Lewis. The music for this podcast was composed by Kai Metzner. All of the interviews featured in this podcast were recorded on location in Washington, D.C. by Dennis Provost. The Resistance Companion Podcast is part of our larger multimedia project, including a web series which you can watch at vimeo.com slash Thanks for listening, and until next time, Keep resisting.